I turned an ancient poet's book and found upon the page, stone walls do not a prison make or iron bars a cage. Yes, that is true. And something more, that marble floors and gilded walls can never make a home. But everywhere that love abides and friendship is a guest is surely home and home sweet home. For there the soul can rest. Those words by Henry Van Dyke emphasize that the love of home is really our love for those who make up our homes. It tells us something very important about family and the importance of family. There have been few who were more concerned, if any, more concerned with their lineage and their family record as were the Jews. They were very much interested in, in their lineage, the genealogies. And yet, interestingly, with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, those genealogies can no longer be traced, which would be necessary if indeed Judaism were going to be, were going to be practiced as it ultimately or uh, at one time was. It can never be again. But it shouldn't be again because we're under that new covenant. But they really can no longer trace that lineage, but they were very concerned with that lineage and with that heritage. Well, you remember the, uh, the series Roots many years ago, and that, that generated a great deal of interest in, in genealogy and family history. And even today, there are those who are interested in their family records. And you see advertisements on TV, Ancestry.com, and how you can find your your family history. And so there is a great deal of interest. We're interested in those things because lineage does tell of our family record. It tells of the kind of people from whom we sprang. Luke 16, 19 through 31, provides a look at the record of a family, a record that reveals much about that family. And that's the family I'd like for us to consider this morning. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may tip the, dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime... You received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. The record of a family. The rich man's family. And that's the first point about that family. It was rich. He was a rich man. He was a part of a wealthy family. And wealth in itself is not inherently evil. Its role in life depends upon the attitude toward it. And so of the rich man in this case, or of any rich man, we would ask, is he possessed by riches or is he a possessor of riches? And there's a vast difference between the two. Tragically, there are many today, as was this rich man, obviously, who was possessed by his riches rather than being simply a possessor of those riches with an understanding of the responsibility that those riches brought to him. And yet we can read of others in Scripture who were wealthy but were pleasing to God. The friend of God, as he is called, Abraham, was a wealthy man. Job was a wealthy man. And yet they were righteous before God. And so properly used, obviously, wealth can accomplish so much good. But improperly used, it can and will result in so much ruin. Listen to Paul's warning as he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. But those who desire to be rich, not just those who are rich, keep in mind, but those who desire to be rich, those who are consumed with the accumulation of riches would be included here, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And then he goes on for the love of money, not money, remember, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Remember that rich man in Luke 12? To whom the Lord said, fool, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? No pockets in a shroud. You cannot take it with you. And yet that rich man, as we are told in that account, was one who said, what am I going to do? I have so much, my barns are overflowing, I'll just, I'll just tear those down and build bigger barns. What an attitude. What a failure to recognize that we are stewards of everything we have. Everything. Nothing belongs to us. Our possessions are to be used properly to help secure for us a place in heaven. Remember what the Lord said about it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This was a wealthy family. A wealthy family. But it was also a large family. A family of at least these six boys. Because remember he said, I have, I have five brothers. So six boys here, at least in this family. A family of six boys. And when we think about that large family, we can think about the love, the laughter, the closeness of a large family. And that appeals to almost 
everyone. I know there are some, at least, perhaps many of you who came from large families, and you can relate to, to that. And all of that love and laughter and closeness of that large family. But this was also a family that was visited by death. The rich man also died and was buried. Luke 16, 22. Let me ask you, where is the family upon whom death has not called? Where is that family? Every living creature ever lives in the very shadow of death. Second Samuel 23, 2 David on that occasion says there is but a step between me and death. Now he was, he was uh, expressing those words at a time when Saul, the enraged and jealous king, was pursuing him. But the statement is true whether anyone's pursuing or not because death is pursuing. And ultimately will overtake every single one of us unless the Lord comes first. Man who is born of woman, remember what Job said, is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And you remember the words of James in James chapter 4, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. A little time. I don't care if you live to be a hundred. I don't care if you live to be a hundred and twenty. If you could live to be a thousand. That would still be true. A little time. Compared to eternity, all time is little time. And then we vanish away. It is appointed unto men to die once. It's appointed, appointed to die once. And then comes the judgment. Yes, death is a conquering king. His palace is the grave. His flowers are the faded garlands on the coffin's lid. His music is the cry of desolate homes. The chalice of his banquet is a skull. His pleasure fountains are the falling tears of a perishing world. Because that's where we are. And one day, one day the hand of death will beckon to us. All earthly ties will be severed and we will pass into eternity. Money will not keep us alive. Medicine, the finest doctors will ultimately surrender themselves to death. Because it'll take paupers, it takes presidents, it takes kings, it takes commoners. And so the question that's so pertinent to all of us is, will we be ready to go? And what of others in your family? What about them? Or what about this family we're looking at this morning? Will you be a part of a family that has made no preparation? This was a family also, verse 23 reminds us, with one member already in torment. And that's a tragedy beyond description. But the rich man lifted up his eyes in a place without God. 
Now contrast that to what he said about Lazarus, that poor beggar, about whom we know very little. But we, ought, we must know, we do know he was faithful to God under the dispensation that he lived. Otherwise, he would never have enjoyed that angelic escort into the bosom of Abraham. Now, was that something that was available to Lazarus then that's not available to me today? I think not. I think that is as available to me today and to you today as it was to him. The moment we draw our last breath, if we're like Lazarus, faithful under this new covenant, the Christian dispensation, we can anticipate that angelic escort into the paradise of God. What a thought. What a comforting thought. The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Then the rich man also died and was buried and wishes even today that that was it, that he was buried and like Rover, dead all over and nothing after that, but in torment he lifted up his eyes. A family, this family is with one member, lifting up his eyes in a flame of fire, tormented, he said, in this flame. And yet, think about it, still maintaining the kind of selfish attitude that he no doubt manifested in life. As Lazarus was laid at his gate day in and day out, his body racked with sores, the dogs had more mercy upon him than the rich man. They came and licked his sores, as it were, and yet the rich man obviously ignored him. And now he lifts up his eyes in a place where there is torment. But he wishes that those words, the rich man died and was buried, were the last words that could ever be spoken of him. But they were not, nor will they be of us. Because when we're buried, it will only be the body that is buried. The spirit will have already left that body. The body without the spirit is what, James said, dead. But the spirit is very much alive. And that's what this account reminds us of. A family with one member in torment. Lifting up his eyes in a flame of fire. Lifting up his eyes in a place without comfort. And as I was about to say, the selfish attitude that he manifested in life is still present in torment. Is it not? Listen to it. Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Would you send this man to me, please, and let him dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He still wanted Lazarus to serve him, it seems. And what did Abraham remind him of? Son, Remember, that you in your lifetime received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are continually tormented. He is comforted. He is comforted. With a comfort that we can only imagine, we can't fully comprehend it, I don't believe, with the finite mind, but we sure need to spend a lot of time trying and anticipating the kind of comfort that we can all enjoy ultimately, and that our loved ones, even departed loved ones, no matter 
how they live their lives would want us to enjoy. And I know that because we're about to see that very reality in terms of his next request. But a man of a family, a large, wealthy family, one member already in torment. And he lifted up his eyes in that place without comfort. You know, many who are, quote, too tired in this life to serve God are resting now to spend an eternity without rest. How tragic. Resting now to be an eternity, an eternity without rest. And he also lifted up his eyes with the realization that he was lost for eternity. Between us and you, Abraham said to him, there is a great gulf, what? Fixed. Fixed. It will never change. It will never change. Those who would like to pass to us, he said, cannot, neither can those here pass to you. That great gulf is fixed. Lost for eternity. Second Thessalonians 1. Verses 7 through 9. And to you, or to give to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. What a chilling, chilling statement that is. Reminding us that hell is real and it will be populated by families and by members of families who were unprepared. And that leads us to the next point about this family, and that is, this was a family not only with one member in torment, but with five on the way. Five others were on the way. And many times that's the case because whole families will go the same way. Godly parents usually will have faithful, godly children. Ungodly parents usually will not. Now, that's not always the case. We know that. But generally, that is the case. And that's certainly what we, if we're godly parents, it's certainly what we pray for. It's certainly what we work for. It's certainly what we hope to be the case with our children. And it shows the importance of parental influence. And who knows, it may have been a factor here. Because he was in torment and he said, I have five brothers. I have five brothers. And his statement indicates they were on the way to join him. You hear about a four-year-old child playing in the driveway of his home, being run over by his father who did not see him. And it gives you a feeling that is physically sickening to think about 
that. But compare that with the parents who are killing their children with sin in the name of the child's freedom or lack of interest or waywardness or hypocrisy. Parents in our world today, in our country today, need to awaken to the seriousness of responsibility. You know what? What God said about Abraham needs to be said of all of us. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And what did Moses say to the people of his day in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 7 about the parental responsibility? You shall teach them, what? The precepts of God. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Look for every opportunity to live it before your children and to teach it to your children. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Passage after passage on parental responsibility. It really is parental privilege. When you think about it, it's parental privilege to have the precious privilege to mold or to do all that we can to mold a child in the way he or she should go. You know, children have the right to be well-led as well as to be well-fed. And so we need to ask ourselves, where are we leading them? For those who don't have children, those who aren't even married but ultimately will form families, where will you lead your children? And will you take that responsibility seriously? It's not enough to give them material things. It's not enough to give them a good education. And we can't lead them if we're being hypocritical. Hell will be populated with someone's children. That's true, isn't it? Are our homes, are our homes like the home of the little girl who was asked by someone, does your family pray? And she said, no, God doesn't live at our house. God doesn't live at our house. But, you know, that brings us to the next point about this family record we're looking at this morning. And that is it was a family with every opportunity to be saved. Go back to verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses. And the prophets, let them hear them. You see, these people lived under the Mosaic dispensation. So Abraham rightfully said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Not literally Moses, not literally all the prophets, but it's a figure of speech used to indicate they had the law of God. Your brothers have the word of God, is what he was saying. And you know what the rich man said? He said, no, no father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The Word of God won't do it. But you let them see a miracle. And that'll do it. And it was at that point that Abraham said, Why didn't I think of that? 
course you're right. No. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. And we've said before, I always think of another Lazarus when I read those words. Remember Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, whom Jesus raised from the dead after he'd been in the tomb four days? And many of the Jews who saw it became believers, but others went away to the Pharisees to say to them, in effect, you've got big trouble now. He's raised the dead. And the Pharisees said, what? That convinces us we're going to follow him too. No, they said, we need to kill Lazarus because we need to get rid of the evidence. Miracles, even if they were performable today, which they are not because we have this, would they convince the wrong kind of heart? No. The key is the heart. And if the heart is right, this will do it. This will do it. And that really is what Abraham was saying, even at a time before this was in its complete and final form, if we would just stop ignoring it and spend the time with it that we need. The rich man said, the word is not enough. Abraham said, it is. And if we reject God's word, if we fail to examine it honestly and fairly and realize its power in our lives and in the lives of our families, then we're going to lose our souls. Why should we believe this book? Because it is God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's why we should believe it. We should believe it because it's the only thing that can save your soul. Therefore laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, James said, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. James 1 Verse 21, First Peter 1, 23, Peter said, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The psalmist long ago wrote in Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Why should I believe the Bible? There's no other proof available, no other proof needed. It speaks for itself and claims for itself all sufficiency and proves itself to be all sufficient to the honest student. And by it, ultimately, we will be judged. John 12:48, how often have we quoted that passage? Jesus said, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For all of us, it's that new covenant, the New Testament. And God has left man without excuse for being lost. He gave his only begotten son. He gave the very best heaven had to offer. And Christ willingly gave his life on Calvary. He has revealed His will to us by the Holy Spirit. We have it in the Word of God and it's written for our understanding and it's written for our obedience. 
Ephesians 5, 17, Wherefore do not be unwise, Paul wrote, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you what? Hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And Jesus asked, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? These are the things he has said. Specifically, his New Testament. Yes, the plan is clear. We've got to hear this. We've got to believe it with all of our hearts and believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of our sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And you know, in the New Testament, we read about people who took advantage of their very first opportunity to obey the gospel. We read about those on Pentecost, some 3,000 souls. We read about the Ethiopian eunuch. We read about Lydia. We read about the, uh, the uh, jailer, the Philippian jailer. They didn't wait because at death, the door of opportunity will be forevermore closed. It is appointed unto men to die once and after this the judgment. And so many tragically will be like this rich man. So what does this family's record that we've been looking at this morning show? A wealthy family, a large family, a family that was visited by death, a family with one member lost and others on the way, and yet opportunity still there for those who were still living. And there are many in our world like these today who do not realize that the most important heritage they could have is to have God as their father. Not a question of who your earthly father or your earthly grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-grandfather is God your father. That's the key. And today's the only day God has promised. Tomorrow's written on the calendar of fools. And so today... You have an opportunity, if you haven't done it, to add God to your family as father, to add Jesus as your elder brother, to add his word as your guidebook, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you haven't done it, we plead with you to do that this morning. If you need to come home to your first love, the family of God in this place waits eagerly to pray with you and for you to a God who desires to be your father or to be your father again as he once was if you've wandered from him as a wayward child. Come home in repentance. Come to him initially in obedience to the gospel as we stand to sing to encourage you.